Next up we have from the Graduate School of Education, someone who's very interested in, quote, how people learn things and what anyone can do to help. She's pioneered the work on critical exploration, the process of finding ways to draw learners into direct contact with the subject matter they are studying, and has founded Critical Explorers, a nonprofit to promote critical exploration. We are proud to welcome, speaking on confusion, play, and postponing certainty, a great inspiration of mine, Professor Eleanor Duckworth. Let's hear it for her. I make certain assumptions. I assume that we want students to come to feel the power of their minds and of their creative capacities. I assume we want students' understanding to be deep and confident and complex and their means of expression to be varied and nuanced. I assume we want students to develop a sense of community responsibility, democratic commitment, and social justice. <clears throat> So I am very disturbed by the current policies labeled school reform. More and more time taking tests, less and less time learning. More and more simple right answers, less and less complexity. More and more intellectual orthodoxy, less and less diversity. As an aside here, let me say how deeply I admire those school teachers who, maintaining larger visions, stay in the classrooms knowing how important it is to the students for them to be there, doing everything they can to get around the edges while also doing what's required of them, decreed more for political purposes than for educational ones. Also in passing, let me point out how few have noticed the contradiction between the names of the federal programs, No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top. Race, racing with leaving no one behind. Needless, needless to say, students are being deprived of their right to a good education. I'd also like to say that teachers are being deprived, not only of their professional dignity, but for me, even more regrettable, of knowing the joy that their work could bring them. I want to talk about how teaching can be, and even now would be, if teachers were offered support, a lot of support, instead of a lot of constraints. My question over the years, first as a student of cognitive psychology and then as a student of teaching, as Pete has said, is how do people learn things and what can anyone do to help? And my title, Confusion, Play, and Postponing Certainty, names what I've learned are important char characteristics of learning and teaching. I could have put figuring things out at the head of it all. The others derived from that starting point. And my subtitle is if you're lucky, you'll get to teach. So I consider teaching to be helping people learn, not standing and telling people what you know. The key, as I've seen, is to aim for putting learners directly in touch with the subject matter, not with words about the subject matter. <clears throat> it's not a matter of mediating between the subject matter and the learners. It's not a matter of telling them how to think about it but keeping learners directly in touch with the subject matter itself, and the subject matter becomes the authority. Let me give an example.
Lisa Schneier taught ninth grade English in a regular Boston high school. She's written about working on poetry for one five-week period, studying three poems during that time. For two-thirds of the students, English was the second or third language. She chose to do the work with students from the lowest of four tracks, confident that their work would help her counter the idea that the level that a student is assigned has any correlation with innate ability. Here's the poem they started with in that period. After the students read it to themselves, these were their first responses. I don't get this. It don't rhyme. It don't make sense. It's silly. It doesn't make sense. It's stupid. It's exaggerating too much. I mean, it can exaggerate, but it's got to make sense. It's stupid. I don't know. I just don't like it. This would discourage most teachers. But Schneier writes, I felt we were on fertile ground. <laughs> she had hoped that by violating their expectations of what language does, the poem would bring those expectations to light. And she had relied on that poem to do just that. And then to get the students moving on, she knew she needed to find something that did make sense to each of them. And again, she relied on the poem. She asked a student to read it aloud, and that reading moved several of the students to a further, a fuller realization of what seemed stupid to them. The poem had pieces that didn't connect with one another. One student said, the plot's supposed to be one main thing, but this stuff is separating. It's like different stuffs. <laughs> she asked James to show her what the different pieces were for him, and he looked at the poem and then replied, like around the end, the starting, the middle, like everywhere, I don't know. And Schneier said, just show me one piece and then what another piece is that doesn't go with it. And so they got started. Most of them found some cohesion up through you wet brown bag of a woman. And they started the hard job of pulling it all together. There are wonderful moments throughout the many sessions they spent on this poem. Among other things, I love to see their persistence even when the going is tough. Here's one conversation. I think everybody's standing up for her because she's beautiful. No, she's garbage. Oh, maybe she's poor and they're standing up for her. This is too confusing. Yeah, too confusing. We should talk about this one week before the end. They meant in the fourth week of the study instead of at the beginning. Later on when we master it, I mean, when we get better at this, it's too hard to start with. And laughingly, one of them said, we should start with roses are red and violets are blue. At another moment, they're puzzling over waiting for her mind. And one of them suggests that they call this Lucille Clifton, the poet, for an explanation. <laughs> but a moment later, that thought is overtaken by Marco's astonishing statement, it doesn't have to be a woman or a man. It could be the destruction of our forest or something, something torn down or a farm or something. The other students turn to, turn to stare at him. This thought took center stage and stayed there for a long time, compelling the students back into the poem's text to find support for their points of view. Yeah, but she didn't say farm or anything. She says potato peels. No, because right here, Marco says, it doesn't have to be a woman. And Juana says, yeah, Marco says it could be forest or something. 
Well, it couldn't be because when it says, when I watch you, when I watch you, you can't refer to a forest as like that as it would if it be a person. That's too much exaggeration. They're watching the trees and it says, waiting for your mind. And then Marco at one point says, no. Schneier asks him, go ahead, no what? He says, it still doesn't have to be a woman, man. <laughs> so this intense study of the poem goes on. At one point, Nildo gives Marco a little support. Nildo says, it's like Marco says, it could be some type of vegetable that they're talking about. <laughs> I'm serious because you could be exaggerating in a poem. Marco responded, yeah, it could be anything. Schneier writes, it took this last statement with its emphatic could to make me realize the enormity of the question that Marco was raising. He's not saying that the you in the poem does mean anything. He's saying it could. She goes on, I interpreted his question as follows. Once language moves beyond the boundaries of direct referring, once it becomes figurative, how do we secure its meaning? If it could mean anything, how do we determine what it does mean? The study kept going, but I'll stop here. I want to emphasize how the poem was the authority here, not the teacher. The teacher had hard work to do, but it wasn't the work of explaining her own ideas or those of a textbook or a curriculum or the literary authorities. It was the work of keeping the students connected to the poem itself. She had faith in the power of a good poem and she had faith in the power of her students' minds and that double faith brought the students to the very heart of the matter, the very nature of poetic use of language. I also want to point out how deeply engrossed the students were this is what is most powerful to me about this teaching. In my own teaching, we sometimes look at mirrors. Question being, what we see in them when we're not looking at ourselves. Serious questions lead to experiments that have a very playful character. Standing on tables to check out one idea, lying on the floor to demonstrate another. One of my favorite images from this work is from India, where to track the sight lines, in order to figure out the problem I had set. The women had taken off their long, beautiful scarves and tied them together, stretching from mirror to viewer and mirror to object. They were joyous about using their scarves this way, but the reason wasn't joy, it wasn't play, it was in order to figure out the mirrors. That was what was to hand. This mirror work also can go very deep pursuing their experimental questions with care as well as playfulness, another group wondered, if light is waves, what's the medium that they're in? If it's particles, why don't they bounce off each other and mess up all the images? Studying the habits of the moon, students voluntarily set their alarm clocks for three in the morning to check out a prediction about where it will be and what it will look like. Children come to class to help me show my adult students how much kids can figure out by themselves. And the children work for an hour on one problem, volume say, with 50 people watching because they want to resolve the contradictions that they get themselves into. Can you imagine a greater way to spend your working life? Drawing students into your subject matter, seeing what their ideas are, witnessing the struggles, the insights, the perseverance, the playfulness, often enriching your own point of view with theirs. It's engrossing and fascinating and exhilarating. 
I wish it for you, and I wish it for children and teachers in our schools right now. Thank you.